we shifted our approach to investing to make sure that we're always building in the end, building in what matters personally. And that's so diverse and so different for everybody. But it was an important reminder for me to always begin from the end and then build your business around whatever that end is. And you can do it. You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, Julie, how's it going? I'm doing well. How about you? Hanging in there? Oh, yeah. How are, how are your kids today? <laughs> They're okay. I must have heard mommy at least 150 <laughs> times before <laughs> before we recorded this morning. But, uh, you know, feeling feeling hopeful. The sun is shining. Uh, you know, we're supposed to have some really nice weather this week, so I can't complain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about uh, plants versus zombies over here. My kids are super into oh, plants right. versus zombies. And so I'm trying to use that to to teach them a little bit of, you know, a little bit of science, a little bit of math, a little bit of uh, financial literacy, you know, plant more sun, sunflowers so you get more sun. So you get, you know, <laughs> little So you lessons. don't turn into a zombie or something? <laughs> so you can fight the zombies. I know so not- you- <laughs> oh, okay. I know nothing about what that is. Is that a video game? It is. It I is. have no it idea. Is. I okay. am so, I'm so glad I went to game design school. Otherwise, I would have no idea what they're talking yeah. about. And so. I have no clue. I have no clue. But that sounds fun. I love, you know, that's something that I've been trying to figure out is how I can take a topic and then teach it to an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old, I know, um, right? you know, all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm all about efficiency. So right. it's like, how can I teach them the same topic on a chalkboard? And yeah. I ask each of them like different questions. And then, and you know, your kids are, uh, have what, three years between them. Yeah. So it's, tough to it is how do you you know it is not adjust easy for that. and you know I, I i was actually an elementary school teacher so i actually taught right. and That's it's right hard yeah. it's really hard it's way <laughs> different teaching your own kids versus teaching a class full of other people's kids oh my gosh other people's kids don't hang on you and go mommy 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 <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's been that's one thing I realized throughout all of this is I'm no educator. I am no educator. That is for sure. My patience like (laughs) runs super thin. Um, But it's been fun getting to, you know, know them and understand what their learning style they're like and all of that. So Yeah. yeah. Well, I am very excited to share with our audience our conversation today with Chad Carson of Mm CoachCarson.com. He has quite a story. He started investing in his 20s, in his early 20s, ahead of the 2008 recession. And he sort of just, he went to a seminar, learned how to flip houses and thought, this is the best thing ever. And he followed it. He actually took action and did it and amassed all of these flip properties. And then 2008 happened. And um, he talks about that in the conversation about what happened. And the lessons that he took away from that are so applicable to everything that's going on now with the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just it's such a valuable conversation for people to hear. 
Yeah, it's always really interesting to hear about people who have been investing in real estate since before the last um, crash, because I, you and I haven't, and mm -hmm. we came in at the at the bottom, um, and so this will be our first, uh, you know, recession or downturn that we go through. Um, but it's always interesting to hear the lessons from them because there's always golden nuggets that you can take away. Um, and one of the things that he had brought up that. It's just such a good reminder for, for me is that in life, we have many different currencies, right? Like money is just one currency. And then he brought up that time and flexibility are other types of currency. And when you think about being rich or being successful, and if you can build your life to have more time or more flexibility, that that is just the same, if not better as having lots of money in the bank, right? And so, you know, understanding how to balance all of those things in your life to live the life that you want um, is all that we talked about in the beginning part of the of the show. But um, yeah, it was it was a great one. Such a good conversation. All our listeners, uh, you're going to love this one. Here is our conversation with Chad Carson. Chad, how are you? I'm doing great, Annie. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Julie. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you here. Now, Chad, we first met, you and I first met at a conference a few years ago, and I remember being instantly impressed with how genuinely you care about helping other people and how approachable you are despite all the success that you've seen. And in fact, you say that your mission is to do more of what matters which here at Investing for Good and at Good Egg Investments, we love that. So tell us what that means to you and then tell us a little bit about how you started this crazy journey to get to where you are today. Thank you. Well, thanks for that introduction. Uh, I think the do what matters motto is something when I, st I started blogging and helping other people out a little bit on the side, I've always been a real estate investor and that's what I did after I graduated from college actually. And I think the, the reason that's resonated with me is more of a, it's been an aspirational goal, a way of sort of quantifying or just putting in words what I thought the why behind a lot of my investing was mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm, I'm, I like buying properties. I like rentals. I like, I like building wealth, but to me, I, we actually, I have a business partner and the two of us got into sort of a challenge and that we were buying a lot of properties, having some of that quote success of having some financial success. But then we realized that we were really busy and we were doing all this stuff in the business and the business was kind of taking a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And it was right in 2007, right before the last downturn. And we just took this moment to step back from it and say, you know what, if we made a list of things that we actually enjoyed doing and irregardless of money, you know, just, just, just write what, what's important to you. What do you what would, how would you spend your time? And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't married at the time yet. And I didn't have kids like I do now. But the things I wrote down were like playing uh, pickup basketball in the middle of the day or taking a hike in the woods or traveling, which I really enjoyed doing, speaking foreign languages. You know, they were things that some of them cost some money, but it was very quantifiable. It was, very, it was pretty limited, the amount of money. And playing basketball in the middle of the day, I mean, they didn't take any money, but it took a lot of time. So it, so it sort of informed my whole approach. And we shifted our approach to investing to make sure that we're always building in the end, building in what matters personally. And that's so diverse and so different for everybody. But it was an important reminder for me to always begin from the end and then build your business around whatever that end is. And you can do it. I mean, you can change it and make it look 
like something that serves you and your life instead of being a slave to whatever your business direction your business has to go or what other people think success means. That is uh, that is so insightful. I think most people just start out and whether they're launching a business or they're working to climb the corporate ladder, they're just like, okay, what's my next project? What's my next deadline? They don't stop to think, well, what's the end goal here? What am I trying to achieve? And right. I think it's brilliant that you started there and then you realize that, hey, it, d- it doesn't actually take that much to build this life that I actually want. And I didn't figure it out at first. I just want to make that point that I'm, I'm, I'm more of somebody who learns like by like running into a wall and say, wait a minute, I just bumped my nose and that was not right. So it, it wasn't very brilliant on my part other than just like getting getting a lot well, of bruises really. What, what bruises and what wall did you run into that made you um, come to that realization and, and do that exercise? Yeah, it was actually, we went to a seminar, like our, I was 23 years old and there was a really impressive lady who was flipping a lot of houses and her business model was like flipping 50 houses per year. And we, you know, we, we had the capability, my business partner and I thought, well, we could do that. That's, she just showed us how to do it. Let's go do it. And we ended up three years later, not doing the exact same model she did, but we bought almost 50 properties in one year, 2007 mm-hmm. and um, 33 closings. We flipped a lot of houses. We made a lot of money. But that was the, the thing, the, the wall we ran up into was that realization that like, wait a minute, like we just borrowed her goals and she was impressive, but like those were not our goals. And mm-hmm. we also had the background of the recession, which is kind of appropriate now because mm-hmm. we're, you know, financial right. crisis at the moment that we started realizing, wait a minute, like we're making decisions that aren't even going to make us happy mm-hmm. that might put us more at risk financially. And mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, let's, let's take a step back. So that was, that was more the bumping into the wall at that point. Gotcha. Well, so tell us, uh, take us back to that time. So it's 2007, you've bought 50 houses and 2008 hits. What, what happens? What do you, what happened to your portfolio at that point? Yeah. So there were some things we did really well in 2007. Like some of these were just flips. So like we had some flips that we made 50, 60,000 bucks on a flip. So that, that money went in the bank and that was good. And the fortunate thing we did, I'll tell you some good things we did well. I'll tell you some things we did badly and you probably learned more from the bad, <laughs> the bad <laughs> things, but the, um, the good things we did was we lived pretty frugally and I got married that year, actually later in that year. And in my wife, when we, we moved into a fourplex that I had already bought before that. So I was house hacking and we lived in <laughs> unit number two of the fourplex and we lived for free. We didn't have any overhead. And so like, those were good. Like we just didn't spend a lot of money. We enjoyed camping. We enjoyed playing basketball. I mean, there was nothing like expensive in our lifestyle. So that was, that was good. So the money we did make, we just, just kind of set in the bank pretty much. But the bad news was we needed that money in 2008 and 2009 because <laughs> some of the deals we bought were in the wrong locations or we underestimated repair costs. We underestimated the amount of maintenance a property would take. Like, so we bought some older rental properties and we thought, oh, this is going to make 200 bucks per month in cash flow. And then we learned the hard way about capital expenses and the fact that we didn't allocate for money to replace roofs and replace these old things in the houses. So we, a, we kind of had a trial by fire of learning not only about those mistakes that a lot of new people make, but we made them really fast because we grew so fast and we had to absorb some of those reserves that we had saved over the years and we had to really adjust because 2008 and nine was not as easy to flip initially. Um, so we had to become landlords. We had to learn how to manage properties, build systems, learn how to work with our tenants. We learned how to owner finance properties at the time. We sold a lot of properties with owner financing. So we just, I guess the theme was we had to adjust really quickly and learn fast, which I think a lot of people are going to have to do now too. It's the, the one constant is everything changes. So this is going to be a new market with new realities, new 
uh, opportunities, new challenges. And that's, that's just, you want to be nimble as an investor to be able to take advantage of that. And I think that was the mistake we made. We got too big, too fast, and we were lucky enough to have some reserves to, to lean on. What market was this in? So I'm in Clemson, South Carolina. Um, so it's a small college town in the kind of halfway in between Charlotte and Atlanta. So that the bigger region is the, they call it the Charlotte corridor. It's the, in the South, a lot of, a lot of growth, a lot of development, but we're, our little pocket is a college town. And so we, we uh, evolved into student rentals. It's kind of about half what we do now, but we also have houses. We also have some little small mobile homes, some other things, just kind of regular rentals as well. Wow, I can only imagine. So you you go to this seminar, and you're like, we're gonna do this thing, and you actually do it. You achieve success, and then the world throws you this, <laughs> it throws a wrench in, in things, and then you're like, oh no! So now we gotta pivot. We gotta figure out what to do next, and everybody's scrambling. And I think you're absolutely right. In during those times, as now, you have to be nimble. So let me ask you about now. So what are you seeing now? You know, what what are you, let's fast forward to today. Um, I know you also do a lot of real estate coaching. Are you still doing flipping? Are you still doing student rentals now? And then what are you seeing as a result of the current um, financial crisis? Yeah, so our, our business has evolved now. So we where we used to flip all the time to put money on the table. That's just how I made a living. That was my job. Over time, we wanted to have more rental properties to produce passive income, which I know y'all teach a lot of and mm-hmm. do a good job of. Um, so ultimately, the goal was to become more of an investor, not just in the business of being in real estate. That's really what we started at. And so we do we do occasionally flip a house here and there, but we're more in the passive investing role of we own rental properties. And we have about 110 units now between the two of us, our business, business partnership. And we have property managers who manage most of that. We still have a small number that we, we manage ourselves. So like a day-to-day business is that is a good number of student rentals, small multifamily properties, some houses, some loans, we make loans to other people or at financing. Um, and so the, the way it looks right now with the coronavirus and things that have happened, it's been, honestly, it's been different. You know, it's uh, just being nervous about our, our tenants and their, their welfare, first and foremost. Are they going to have a job? What's going to happen? So it really has brought to roost that we're in this together with our tenants. You know, when you, I feel like we're pretty conservative owning residential properties and lower price ranges typically. But when these kind of things happen and there's a lot of uncertainty, especially early on back in March of 2020, it was, you just realized that, hey, our, our destiny, our success as an investor has to do with these people who live in our properties. And, and I've also been very appreciative because for the most part, most of our tenants in our part of the country has been maybe a little bit less affected than other parts. And so they have one way or the other paid the rent. And for most, most of the people who paid the rent, I've communicated with a lot of them you know, personally to see how things are going. But I don't know. That's, that's where my head is a lot. It's just take it week by week, month by month, really appreciative of our tenants, really appreciative of the, the properties we've put, you know, bought and the, you know, that people see those as their homes and they value that. And so I don't know. That's, that's a lot of what I'm thinking these days. So I'm curious, how did you guys scale up to 110 units? Like, how did that, how did you make the transition from like flipping to deciding you're going to be a buy and hold? And mm-hmm. what did that process look like? I'm super curious because I'm like majority into multifamily syndication. <laughs> and as of late, I've been trying to get into thinking about getting into some more buy and holds, maybe some smaller duplexes, single family homes, mm-hmm. um, just to diversify a little bit. And it just seems like such a daunting process. And I hear about all these people who have like hundreds of single family homes. First of all, the 
you know, the getting over the 10 units thing. I don't even know how people are able to do that. I'm sure it's like something pretty easy, like portfolio lending or whatnot. But yeah, going back to my question, how did you scale? Like how, what did that one house to like the first 10 to the 20 to 30? I think there were two things that helped us scale. And one of which is we did it slower the second time. So like that, that first scaling I told you was like 2007. Hey, let's just go out. And all of a sudden we have 50 rental properties. Like, congratulations. Yeah. Here you go. Learn, learn, <laughs> learn how to manage properties. So that, that was like the mistake. Um, this time around, coming out of 2009, 8, 9, 10, 11, you know, we slowly accumulated some properties, but it was more about like selling some, buying some others. It was, you know, like kind of replacing the portfolio mm-hmm. and trying to make, make, constantly improve it. And then by 2015 and 16, we felt like we were more solid financial footing. All right, we've made it through this. We're doing okay. We've got the knowledge. We've got some money. And so we then started scaling more. And we actually, in 2016, bought a 28-unit property all at one time, like one big purchase. We bought some other ones. We're like 12 units at a time. And, but those have been relatively recently, like, you know, last three or four years. And so I think that... What, Couple of things. One is this, the pacing ourselves more on the scaling. I think I, that's my recommendation to people. Is I, there's a book I read um, actually recently did a, did a podcast on it, so it's fresh in my mind called "Building Wealth One House at a Time" mm-hmm. by John Schaub. And the idea is that he's been investing for 40 years in Sarasota, Florida, and he recommends doing one deal at a time. You know, he says houses, houses are his type of investments, but I think even with multi-unit properties, you know, pace yourself, take your time. This is not a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, it's an ultra, ultra marathon here. And if you start off slower, you'll probably finish faster. And so that's, that's been a big realization for me. The second piece though is financing. You brought up the whole 10, 10 loan issue that mm-hmm. when you get traditional financing through traditional sources, at some point, no matter what the number is, you're going to get cut off. Mm-hmm. That's just, mm-hmm. as you scale right. and we had the this this is the reality of our starting our investing career was we were not very bankable like we couldn't go to the bank get a loan because I didn't have a regular job I just graduated from college I was, had a degree in biology with a minor in German had nothing business I was just like jumping in this business as an entrepreneur with no money and so I was really unbankable my business partner had an internet business in 2003 which was like what an internet business do they make money like is that a blog what is that um, and so like neither one of us really could get bank loans that took big numbers. And so very early, we had to learn how to use creative financing, which just means there's a big umbrella of non-bank sources. Mm-hmm. And for, for us, the primary sources included uh, getting private loans primarily from people's self-directed IRAs. Mm-hmm. That's been a big source of money for me. And I, I found that to be really effective because if you think about, if you look at the numbers, there are like trillions of dollars of retirement accounts mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't, aren't educated or realize that you know, they don't have to do all of it, but they don't only have to invest in stocks. They're these basically boutique retirement custodians mm-hmm. who allow you to invest some of your money in a, in a self-directed fashion in limited partnerships, syndications, mm-hmm. uh, loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I did was I taught some more experienced investors than me who just didn't know about this, but they had a lot of money. And I said, hey, did you know that you can loan me money from your retirement account? Hmm. And the first thing, the answer they said was, no, you can't. My CPA says you can't do that. And I said, well, I'm not saying your CPA is wrong, but maybe they need to learn more about it. Let's talk about it. And, and so I educated some people about it and they ended up being lenders for me hmm. and for my business partners. They, they loaned us money. We learned how to use seller financing. We learned how to use lease options. We also did some commercial lending a little bit. I've always been hesitant and a little bit nervous about using bank loans and commercial loans, period, because just the, 
the fact that you have a stack of mortgage documents that are like two inches thick that they've hired a team of attorneys to put together just shows me that I'm, I'm a little bit on the losing end of this negotiation because they have every single clause that I will never understand, kind of like an insurance document that I just don't feel like it's an equal partnership. Whereas when I'm talking directly to a private lender, to a seller, financing person, we, we have an equal footing in our negotiation and I can negotiate a win-win agreement, something that works for both of us. Whereas when you depend solely on banks, the banks are not, there's not evil, but I just think you use them sparingly. And in times like this, when there's a recession, banks are not going to be willing to loan you a lot of money anyway. And so you build these other sources of money along the way, and then you're more recession resilient so you can buy more properties during a downturn. Mm-hmm. I think that's so smart to, to, to go beyond the traditional financing. And just, I, I think in, in some ways it was a blessing right? That yeah. you couldn't get the traditional financing. Exactly. Otherwise, you might not have made it to where you are today. You right. would have hit that 10 loan ceiling and you would have been like, well, yep. that's it. We can't do anymore. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It was kind of like we worked our muscles or we had to exercise our muscles just because we had to. We got thrown in the deep yeah. end of the pool. We had right. to learn how to swim and they're like, okay, this is pretty good. I don't think I'm, yeah. that's really the way it worked. Once we could get loans, we can get bank loans and do that, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not been our choice. We still like the 28 unit building we bought a couple of years ago, we used a commercial loan for part of that, but then we use private loans for a bulk of it as well. I'm curious, what kind of returns do you give on the um, self-directed IRAs? Uh, it's, it's been a range. So when we used to flip houses, we started off paying 10% interest mm-hmm. to our investors. Mm-hmm. So just be, and I try to keep it very simple. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I learned from, all, from you because y- y'all do bigger deals and you know, syndications and things that I'm, I'm still learning from, but my deals have been really, really simple where we pay them interest and they're the bank and mm-hmm. they, just have a mortgage, they just have a mortgage on the property. So typically they would pay us, like we would, our, our rules were, we're going to try to give you an attractive interest rate mm-hmm. that's evolved over time. We're going to always try to keep you at a low loan to value ratio. Mm-hmm. So if it's a hundred thousand dollar property, we don't want them to be any more than 70% mm-hmm. cents on the dollar, mm-hmm. sometimes less. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, if we do that and we get loans from people who are, in, who are real estate investors, mm-hmm. they don't mind uh, owning property, we tell them like, hey, the worst case scenario here is, there's always a worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Let's tell you that up front is that if we get run over by a bus or we go bankrupt or something happens, you have this property that you own at 70 cents on the dollar and you're going to hire an attorney and take this property back. Mm-hmm. And if you're comfortable with that, then make the loan. Mm-hmm. If you're not comfortable with that, don't make the loan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's, that was how we got started over time though. And this was another recession thing is we stopped flipping as many houses. Mm-hmm. So I went back to the same investors and say, Hey, we're going to be holding a lot of properties and we can't pay 10% interest on these properties when we hold them. It just doesn't pencil. Mm-hmm. And so we said, how about we just pay you 6% interest, mm-hmm. but we'll guarantee that for a longer period of time, or we'll mm-hmm. have a contract for five years or 10 years or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so, so we basically evolved into a more of a buy and hold business. And so our 6% interest, interest only, or 30-year amortization with a 15-year call is kind of the, the standard that okay. we do okay. these days. I don't know that a lot of people are aware of that. I know with our investors, a lot of them are aware you can use self-directed IRAs to invest as a you know, limited partner in the deals we do, right. but I don't know that a lot of them are even aware of a, that other option. So right. that's awesome. Yeah. I'm curious, are you guys buying right now? Because it's so like, you know, it's something we talk about a lot in multifamily too, with everything going on. It's hard to do your underwriting and really, you know, foresee what's happening and, 
when, you know, we think we're coming out of it, but then, you know, they say the second, third wave may come around and winter's going to look bad and all these job losses. I mean, how are you accommodating for that in your, in your underwriting? Uh, I'm a little more, not pessimistic, but I'm just, I'm, I'm being more patient. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that, I think just where we are, like we just, we've accomplished, we, it's like we're climbing a mountain and we've achieved a certain height on the mountain. It's like, why would I try to do something that slides back down? So I'm mm -hmm. just becoming more conservative. Uh, but the other thing is I just, I, my sense of the interconnectedness of the crisis and mm -hmm. how much this is going to impact, and I might be completely wrong, but I, just, I feel like it's more wide ranging. It's more, it's going to impact us over a longer period of time. And so mm -hmm. I'm just, uh, I think I heard a metaphor one time, like you don't want to try to catch a falling knife. Mm -hmm. like, you, you could catch the knife in this, but you could also like cut your hand. And I sort of where I see us right now is that mm -hmm. let's, let's wait to, I don't think in real estate, we have the fortune. It's not like the stock market where things change like in a day, right. we at a, even a fast change is going to mm -hmm. be two or three months. And so I think we have the ability to be patient, mm -hmm. to wait you know, we still found deals in 2015 and 16 from the mm -hmm. last recession in 2008 and nine. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I think this impulse that we need to get in the deal, we're going to miss out is probably misinformed. And I think it's just good to be patient, save your money, see what's happening, study the market for sure. If, if, a, great, if a great deal fell in my lap in some of my target locations, I wouldn't mm -hmm. be opposed to it, but I would be much more conservative underwriting that right now. And when you say great deal, what does great deal mean for you? Uh, it has two components. There's the quantitative, the numbers, mm -hmm. you know, the spreadsheet. Does this meet my return on asset, my return, cash on cash return? Does it have a good growth potential just like numbers wise? Mm -hmm. But then the other is just the qualitative. Uh, I, the, the, one, this is another mistake I learned in 2007 and eight. We bought a bunch of deals with great quantitative numbers. You know, the numbers are awesome, great cap rates, great return on investment. Mm -hmm. But then we looked at the quality of the property and the neighbor mm -hmm. and the neighborhood. And mm -hmm. we realized that we had missed that balance between the two and that probably the best deals we've done have had you know maybe not like a home run numbers maybe mm -hmm. we got like a eight cap or a nine cap but the location got better and better and better mm -hmm. and so over the long run it turned into a much better investment because mm -hmm. the quality of that location the thing that's hard to quantify got better and it was more rare and it was just a desirable location. Mm -hmm. So for me, a great deal, I'm in my local market is close to campus. Mm -hmm. So the closer you are to Clemson University, the more you are on a bus line, the more walkable the neighborhood. I'm big into walkability and gotten like into my, my local uh, nonprofits trying to increase sidewalks and bike trails and things like that because I just, I just like it myself, but mm -hmm. I also see that it's, it's kind of a fabric of the community and quality locations have that component. And it's hard to do. It's really hard to get a city or a neighborhood to become, to have all those qualities. So if you have a building in that quality location, it's even more rare and there's going to be a limited supply of it. Hmm. And so I like to invest in those locations because of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It goes back to the, you know, what they teach you in, in real estate, just generally, right? Location, location, mm -hmm. location. We'll yes. kind of go back to that. So. Yes, that's right. You said earlier, part of your portfolio is student housing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so how has that been impacted? Um, are students still in those those uh, rental homes at this point or have they gone home? Yeah. yeah, that's been a big part of the story for us is that student Clemson University and most universities around the country are doing remote school. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, was a, it was a it's a new thing. It's like every recession you go into is like you cannot look at the script from the last one because who right. would have, you know, Right. College student housing right. was like the recession-proof uh, <laughs> right. uh, type of housing because people always go to college when they can't get a job, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, 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 it was questionable whether it was the uh, pandemic-proof type investment. Right. <laughs> and so far, people have paid their rent, mm. but 
it's the issue is let's say the pandemic we had a relapse we had you know everybody started having to go work from home or go to school from home again in mm-hmm. the fall what happens when students are not coming back for a whole semester again mm-hmm. and that's a unknown and so that's one of the things we've been cautious about it's like well maybe we need how, do we have enough cash do we need to save up more reserves what if our occupancy goes down by half or 75 25 and we've really had those conversations because it's made us nervous about about that possibility yeah because i imagine a lot of students obviously they're you know on a budget most of them right and mm-hmm. i would imagine that a lot of them if they were you know just could you know do remote learning that they would just move home i mean assuming right. that that's a feasible uh, yep. you know, reality for them. And then, you know, they lose that expense. And you could get mom to do laundry again. Right. <laughs> mom, I mean, parents are cooking. I mean, like, why? Yeah, that's like, right. Why, why not? No more top ramen. I mean, you just, uh, you know. You're going to have to start <laughs> offering those services, Chad. <laughs> that's a good, you have good ideas here. All right. So laundry, yeah. Yeah. ramen, yeah. Yeah. Home, home cooking delivered. All right. We got value add here in our, our town. We there you go. It. This is like A class student uh, housing. Yeah. But, I mean, but seriously, one thing that has become clear though, like every recession is something. And if you look at it, this will be informative for people who are doing syndications all these different types of asset classes. Mm-hmm. And we, we, you know, student housing to us was a pretty resilient asset class, but it's a little bit like a second home. I mean, in some cases, particularly the luxury student housing, when you live in a place that feels like a resort and it's got a pool and a lazy river and a clubhouse and you're paying premium rents for that, mm-hmm. that's going to be one of the first things. Those luxury items are always the first things to be cut. Mm-hmm. We, we are, I think we're a little bit more resilient because we're on the lower half of the rent in our area. So some, some places rent for $800 per bedroom. Ours rent for about $300 per bedroom. Oh, wow. And, and so we're kind of at the entry level where mm-hmm. our, our buildings are bought below replacement costs, well below replacement mm-hmm. costs. So it's, it's hard to replicate what we have. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a little bit more flexible. We have a lot of grad students. We have a lot of international students. We have a lot of people who pay their own way through college. So some of these people we found, when I drive through the parking lots right now, they're still there. They're like, they didn't go home. They're not the, the software junior mm-hmm. whose parents have a lot of money and they're paying for them to live right. in the luxury location. These people are usually getting their own scholarships. They're doing their own work on the side, which has been an issue if they work in a restaurant or something. But mm-hmm. it seems to be a little bit different niche. So that's, I think when, it, when people are investing in something, you want to stress test it and say, all right, what happens if this mm-hmm. happens? What happens if this happens? What happens if my workers leave here and not, and try to think through all those different scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I think that's similar to, you know, our approach in multifamily is you're buying the affordable housing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's kind of a safe place to be because while it might be cheaper to move home, I mean, at $300 for a, a room, did you say a room or, or a yeah, bed? Yeah, it'd be like a two-bedroom two apartment, there'd be 300 per bedroom, so two, uh, two roommates might pay 600 650 yeah. per per apartment. Yeah, I mean, at that price, it you know, you'd really have to wonder if you want to move home <laughs> and deal with mom yeah. down your throat every day, like, <laughs> did you do your homework? Exactly. Did you do this? <laughs> Clean up your room and all of that. So, yeah. um, so I like that approach. We'll get back to our conversation with Chad in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid like we were that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. 
We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com invest. And now... Back to our chat with Chad Carson. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the coaching that you do for my own selfish reasons. Um, I'm just <laughs> curious to learn more about how you work with your uh, you know, coaching clients, what that looks like, what a typical person, you know, when they come to you, what is their situation? And then maybe any like, you know, stories of people that, you know, I took them from here to there. I'm just curious what that all looks like. Sure. Yeah, it, it was sort of started by accident. Like mm-hmm. I, I was, uh, I was investing, and then I, I went to my local RIA group, like a real estate investor association, and mm-hmm. taught a class or spoke. And so I just had some people like, "Hey, that sounds interesting. What you're doing? Could mm-hmm. I, could, could I help?" And so I started. It's on the side doing a little bit of consulting, mm-hmm. helping people. And instead of like you know 20 free lunches, it was like, "All right, let's let's like I'm gonna make, do some consulting." And I started a, a business called Coach Carson, mm-hmm. and it was it was just sort of a name like a, a placeholder because mm-hmm. I was like, well, when I get a real business and a real name, I'll name it something different, but I like sports. I used, <laughs> yeah. I used to play football and, and I always, always love, I think the thing that resonated with me was I love learning. Like I'm just a learner. I love reading. I love going to classes. Mm-hmm. And some of my favorite teachers in my life have been coaches. Mm-hmm. They've been, they've been teachers first and foremost, but they mm-hmm. also coach coaching is a little bit different level where you get involved with like in sports, you get involved with their technique and mm-hmm. what are they doing? And you care about them as a person mm-hmm. and you want to help them do better. Mm-hmm. And so co- coach just to me was a, was a neat way of portraying that idea. And mm-hmm. it's evolved into something more than just one-on-one coaching. I started a blog in 2015 and just writing articles. And it's always just been about teaching and trying to break real estate investing down for myself, first mm-hmm. and foremost, mm-hmm. into the most fundamental, basic ways that I can understand it. And then I would share those ideas. And to my surprise, that it was helpful for other people too. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's grown from there from like a blog and I have a podcast now and I do some YouTubing. Mm-hmm. But I also, the way it became a business a couple of years ago, because I was paying a bunch of money out for an email list, I'm like, I got to actually like make some money in this, in this business. <laughs> and so I... Uh, I started teaching classes. And mm-hmm. So I do, I do online courses. Mm-hmm. And like twice a year, I have this uh, course called Real Estate Start School, which is mainly targeted towards newer investors who 
uh, in particular, the niches, they, they want to either buy a property directly, like mm-hmm. a house hack or a live-in, live-in house and then flip it, mm-hmm. or maybe somebody who's shifting gears and they've been buying passively before. Now they want to buy their first rental property directly. Mm-hmm. So that's more the people I work with. I don't do actually do as many syndications just because that's not my expertise. Mm-hmm. It's more about direct ownership. Mm-hmm. And so I go, th- I go, th- what my expertise is, is helping them kind of build the business plan. Let's start, let's figure out the target market you're going to invest in. Let's figure out the financing, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody should do creative financing. Some people have good jobs and good credit. Go, go get a 30-year loan. And so we go through these steps of target market, financing, uh, understanding your team, building your team around you, lead generation, how do you find the deals, all these, I, I call them like fundamentals, like almost like when you're playing sports, when you play basketball, you have to learn how to shoot, you have to learn how to pass, dribble. Real estate investing has the same thing. They have fundamentals. They're not, you know, fly-by-night technique that's going to work this year and not work next year. These are the things you just have to learn how to do, mm-hmm. almost like you're going back to school. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's the approach I take both with my blog and the courses I teach is to try to teach people fundamentals and then bring a little bit of touch of coaching where I give some personalized feedback and help and support and sometimes just, you know, a little bit of encouragement because sometimes it gets frustrating when you hit a wall and it's not working like you want. So that's, this is a lot of fun. This is my, when you talk about do what matters, this is the thing that I love spending my time doing because it's just, I, I love learning. I love sharing and I have, I spend a lot less time on my real estate now, maybe two or three hours a week, sometimes 10 hours, but, and I do a lot of my time writing and doing interviews like this and mm-hmm. getting to help people. Do you have any stories of people that you've helped? Like, I don't know, a success story, like they came to me with this and now they're here, that kind of a thing? Yeah. Um, I've had, had a good number. One that comes to mind for me for some reason is a guy named Michael, who is actually, he's, he edits my podcast now. So that's what just came, came to mind for me. He, he's a, that's his side business. But he, uh, he came to me in my class and was brand new mm-hmm. in his 20s wanted to start investing. And we went through that process that I just talked about. Like mm-hmm. first and foremost, like, all right, Michael, what's your strategy? Like what, you have all these different things you could do. You could flip houses, you could do rentals, mm-hmm. you could do syndications, you could loan money. And for him, he needed a place to live. And so house hacking mm-hmm. was a strategy. That was kind of the first step. Let's figure out a strategy you like. So he was going to move into a property, rent out, uh, rent out this extra unit or extra bedrooms, mm-hmm. and then try to reduce his housing costs. So we started there, and he's in Philadelphia. So we mm-hmm. he picked an area of Philadelphia that he thought was um, had more affordable housing, but also was a nice place to live that he wanted to live. He built his team with his real estate agent, his mortgage broker. Um, he got financing lined up, and he realized that he didn't have enough of a down payment. Mm-hmm. Even with FHA loan, he only had a few thousand bucks, and he to pay for repairs and down payments. It, it took him like. 10 months or 12 months to save the money, mm-hmm. which I think sometimes people don't want to hear. It's like, I'm going to get in right now. Mm-hmm. He had to save his cash. He had to save his down payment. Yeah. And he was very patient with it. And he did that. And about uh, 10 or 11 months later, he made, uh, I think, 12 offers on properties, got rejected 11 times. And on his 12th property, he got one that worked and mm-hmm. he's moved into it. He lives in one unit. He rents out the other one. Wow. He's a traveler like I am. So mm-hmm. he's, he's able to travel a little bit here and there and live mm-hmm. very inexpensively. And that's just one, I mean, every, every yeah. story is a little different. I mean, mm-hmm. but that's, I think that process was really informative to me because it shows how he had patience. It showed how he focused on one strategy and ignored all the other ones for a while. He got his financing lined up. And I think if we, if you kind of look at the fundamentals of a story, mm-hmm. you might not be Michael, but if you look at the way people progress and you start, mm-hmm. you could, everybody can take something from a story like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's one of the big hurdles that a lot of people face is not having enough money for a down payment or, you know, just not Mm -hmm. having, I mean, we have people who come to us want to invest in a syndication and, 
you know, they have maybe $150,000 to their name and that's it. Like that's mm. their, their net worth is $150,000. Yes. And, you know, you have to understand what you have and what the best vehicle is for you with what you have. And it also goes back to like money. Do you have more money? Do you have more time? Do you have both? Do you have neither? Like, and that is really the thing that decides which direction, you know, and what the best investment, you know, moving forward is for you. Exactly right. It's that self-awareness. Like, you know, when I started, I had no money. I had a thousand bucks and I had mm -hmm. to get into the business of real estate investing. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of people I know who they come to me and they don't really like real estate, the business that much. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I say, well, what are you good at? Like, are you a mechanic? Are you a nurse? Are you, you know, like f find something you're good at and mm -hmm. start a business or go to career. Not you know, everybody's path is different. And I think that's one of my main messages. Like, mm -hmm. don't, I just don't like cookie cutters. Like cookie cutters are, are good for like selling courses and, and or they're good for podcast episodes, but they're not good for you getting placed into the cookie cutter because mm -hmm. that hurts. You know, mm -hmm. you're not you're not the same mold yeah. as somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, so just be, you know, listen to podcasts, get ideas, but you are unique and you're gonna have to be, have the self awareness that you just described, Julie, just mm -hmm. to know where you are and what you're good at, what you like. And that's challenging. That's where it's not always easy to figure out. But you, if you do some self, if you do some self reflection and thinking about it, and listen to podcasts like you have, where you have good mentors and advisors to mm -hmm. help you gu guide you through, I think you can get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Annie, I wanted to shift gears for a second and talk about your family. I know you have two girls, nine and seven, and so tell us about what you're teaching them about all of this that you're doing about business, entrepreneurship, about real estate, about finances. What are you hoping that they'll pick up and they'll take forward as they grow up? I hope first and foremost, this is something that you know, maybe they'll realize now, but maybe they won't, is that, that I'm there and that my wife is there. I think that's, that was one of the, when I thought about what matters is just, just being a parent. I don't, I don't have it all figured out by any means, but we no. don't either, but it's, but I do think being present is one of the things that's missing from a lot of parent-child relationships. And so for me, entrepreneurship and investing and financial independence, if, if nothing else, it, it gives me the autonomy to be there, just to say, I, your dad is there. Yes. And yes, I work. Like I, I want them to see me work. I want them to see that I have passions and projects and they see me on the computer a lot now. They're like, what is that I do? He talks on podcasts. <laughs> like, well, yeah, that's true. I do. I do that. And so, but it, they, they're, they're getting more of an awareness of like, okay, well, what does that mean? And they actually want to get on YouTube with me now. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that yet. And you know, putting your pretty faces out on YouTube, but kids are so creative and they're so, they, they love learning. And, and so I, it's been fun to, to talk about business and talk about about entrepreneurship and paint it as something as a creative outlet is something mm -hmm. that you you can do it right now you can and you don't have to take a lot of risk you can um, just try things and it's okay to fail like there's so many lessons with entrepreneurship about that help you build character you know be a, a resilient person with a growth mindset so I think that those are the things I hope they're they're taking away um, I definitely don't want them to feel like they compare like where we are at a certain point and miss the fact that this is how we got there. These are the steps. This is what, you know, we had to struggle. We had to hustle. We had to, and also have some gratitude for the fact that like I, my own path, and I've tried to remind myself of this was, you know, I had a lot of benefits. I had a lot of leg up, you know, I had parents who were fairly well off. My mom was a dentist. My dad had real estate properties. So like, what a, what a benefit to be able to just look at mm -hmm. them and observe them. Yeah. And I had a college scholarship to pay for my school. So, yeah. you know, my, my origin story had all that background, I just want to remind them and remind myself that, you know, everybody starts at a different point. And what my success looks like with a certain number of properties, a certain amount of income at this level of my life, 
might be completely different than another person and they might have made it, you know, they've walked hundred miles compared to my walking two miles to get where I am. Mm -hmm. And so I, I hope that kind of humility message to them also comes through without feeling like, Hey, we've got this properties, this money. I want them to, to, to learn how to appreciate where things come from and where they start. And all that, I think all that can come from again, presence and talking to them about the business and Hey, this is what I'm doing as they're interested. They're not always interested in everything, but every once in a while they'll walk through the door and come sit on, you know, sit on your chair and you have to remind yourself I'm working from home for a reason so that mm -hmm. they can be involved in this. And like, what are you doing? What does that mean? What is that? And it's fun to have those conversations. Do you ever take them to the properties? Any ones that are like local? Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've done it with, with a, quarantining in place that's about a little little trickier but yeah i have we have a triplex we're fixing up and i'm actually documenting it on youtube it's just this it's oh, a major cool. fixer upper i'm mm -hmm. kind of regretting that we actually did it because i forgot how <laughs> how but we used to do a bunch of remodels and now i'm like wait a minute this is why i don't like there's so many details with the remodel yeah but it's a really cool old hundred year old house that was Ooh. converted into a triplex years ago and so it's been a, a neat transformation so we'll go over to the property and they walk in and they're like oh this smells bad and it was i was like <laughs> Is that that's a good that's a good deal that's when it smells right. bad. That's the smell <laughs> of like money. money. <laughs> and they, so they, I think they're always going to remember that one. This smells mm -hmm. like money, and this is ugly. And but then I and then I show them the before and after pictures. Like remember that ugly siding, what that looked like, and this is what this blue color looks now. And they're like, ooh, that looks really good. I want to do a house mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. I think that that creativity that comes through, like we talked about before, mm -hmm. really when, when they get to see it on site and it's physical and it's tangible, that really makes it more real for them. Have you tried to involve them like financially in any way, like teaching them about like money or like, do you want to invest in this deal with daddy or anything like that? Yeah, it's a good idea. I'm, we're beginning to play around with that. Like when, in my courses that I teach, we, we send workbooks. And so their job every time we do that is to put the workbooks in the envelope uh -huh. and seal it up and put the letter in there and the stickers. And then I pay them a, a dollar per envelope and they do like 50 or 70 uh -huh. of them. So, they, yeah. oh, wow. so they, each make, they each split 70 bucks, you know, they uh -huh. get like 35 bucks a piece. And they're like, <laughs> that's wow, good money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am, I'm really overpaying. But, yeah. Yeah. But then, but then some of the money goes to like a donation fund. Like, all right, we're going to give away some of this, some of this you're never going to see again. We're going to put in a savings account and put a lock on it. You know, mm -hmm. this is for long run. <laughs> and then you can spend this much. And it, we try to make it like enough, but it's like a third or, you know, a quarter of the money is what you can spend. And that's a really good lesson too, right? It's like, you don't get all the money you earn. You, right. you can, if you make a, if you make a dollar, you only get 25 cents, right. 50 cents, either by, necessity because you have to pay taxes and do everything else or just because that's the way you achieve financial independence you actually got to save money right so that's that's something where we're not there yet we're playing around with that idea of just teaching them that's how to budget your money and do some of that fun fun i know annie's done mm -hmm. some of that she um took your son over to a flip that they were doing oh ah, cool right yeah, he saved up a hundred bucks and he invested in the flip. He wow. thought that he would be able to double or triple his money <laughs> real quick. And uh, we we took him to the house again and again. He was like, "Is it not done yet?" Or we're like, "No, we still we got to do the kitchen. Now we're doing the bathroom." But he got to see the progress. And wow. at the end, um, you know, we showed him the financials and we said, "This is what you put into it. This is what we put into it. This is how much mm. went here and there. And then this is how much you get back." 
we 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 added a little bit of a buffer to it yeah. to get, pad it a little bit yeah. um, so he wouldn't be too disappointed um, but I, I think he got the overall the overall message that investing is right. a good way to grow your money yeah it's, I love it. it's so fun I did that with my girls about a little over a year ago when my daughter turned six um, my youngest daughter it was her birthday and she got a bunch of money for her birthday from relatives and whatever and I asked her if she wanted to invest with mommy in one of my apartment deals. And I showed her, showed her a picture of the apartment. And I said, see, look at the pretty pool and look at all of this. And she says, Oh, I want to live there. And I said, well, <laughs> how about we don't live there and we live here and we rent it out to somebody else who can live there. And then, mm. you know, went down the whole thing and kind of taught them about syndication that we've, we've been talking about over the last year. Um, and yeah. they got the payout. The big payout was her seventh birthday. So after one year wow, they got wow. their big payout and they were all excited. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to watch the wheels turn, um, and mm -hmm. see them start to kind of understand like, okay, wait, why are we getting this money rent? Oh, right. Rental income. Who is this person? Mm -hmm. Their tenant, their resident, you know, that kind of thing. So that's yeah. so smart. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. It really yeah. is fun. And I, I think you know, who knows what down the road, what they take from that. Right. But nothing else. Like when I was little, my, my dad had rental properties and he used to take us over there. He used to buy foreclosure properties in the summer in Georgia. And there'd be like dirt, you know, nasty stuff in the refrigerator. And he would just drop me off and say, Hey, clean this refrigerator out. I'll be back in three hours. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, this I hate real estate. This is horrible. And, you know, and so there was also, but there's also positive lessons and, I, and going back to what y'all are doing. I mean, it's just, they're, they're going to absorb that and they're going to see it. And who knows, they might not do real estate at all is their main thing, but they're going to remember those lessons and how money worked and it's such a key period of your life to, to learn that stuff. Right. Yeah. I feel mm -hmm. like it's the lessons is, is the takeaway, right? That can be applied in, in so many different areas of, of their lives. And um, I think that's the biggest thing for me that I want them to, to take away. So <laughs> all right. So we're going to move into the investing for good impact round. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right, let's do it. So we're going to ask you three questions um, around investing for good. So the first question is investing in yourself. And I think you kind of answered this question already. But what is one way that your investments are helping you to live a better life? I think it goes back to free time. Is that lesson that we learned in 2007? Is like, wait a minute, lots of money, but what about flexibility? And I actually read a book at that time. There's just the right book at the right time. It was the Four Hour Work Week. Mm -hmm. and it was like early, early in the Four Hour Work Week phenomenon. And <laughs> it, it talked about like money is just one currency of life. That you also have these other currencies like time and flexibility. And and more and more, I've realized that investing has done for me and our family is given us lots, just an abundance of time and flexibility. And that's so much better than having a billion dollars in the bank. If you can, mm -hmm. there's billionaires who have no time and flexibility and mm -hmm. how rich are they? And so we've used that that wealth of time and flexibility. For example, my wife's a Spanish teacher and we love travel. And we went to Ecuador for 17 months in 2017 up through 2018. And that, that experience and that time and that flexibility, because we had some regular income coming in was just mm -hmm. priceless. And that was, I think that's, that's what it's done for us. That's so cool. How did you guys decide on, on that place? Well, we knew Latin America was, well, we do Spanish speaking. We wanted them to become fluent in Spanish okay. uh, early in their, their life. They were three and five at the moment uh -huh. at that time. Uh -huh. And so it was more of a language learning kind of trip uh -huh. and family trip. And so we knew Spanish speaking world. Spain was interesting. We had friends there, but it was a little more expensive. And, and so we looked in Latin America. We loved Argentina from prior trips, but it was a little bit more expensive to get there. And we just kind of threw a dart at the map basically with Ecuador. That. And it's like, we were like, wow, uh, let's 
let's Cuenca, Ecuador. Let's look at that. And they had parks and rivers and beautiful. Like the weather was amazing because it's on the equator, but it's about 8,000 feet up. So yeah. you have like a 50 to 70 degrees year round and really wonderful people. So we went there not knowing if we would stay and we loved it. And the girls went to school, our local schools and made friends and spoke Spanish. You know, they took about five months, but five or six months later, they were correcting me. I curious, <laughs> My wife speaks very well. I have a Southern accent and that shows through in my Spanish, but I can communicate. And my girls at lunch at dinner time were saying, Papa, no se dice eso, no es correcto. And they would, they would correct my Spanish and it was wonderful and I loved it. How, how, that must have been such a hard decision to come home. I mean, it was, we were on the fence. We were, we were thinking about staying longer. It was, it kind of came down to family. Um, mm. My my wife's mother was sick and mm. we really wanted, and, and you know, it's back to your roots, you know, like, why, why are we doing this? We want to be close mm-hmm. to family and have people, people we love yeah. spend time with them. So, but we, mm-hmm. we plan to travel more. I think that's once we get out of the, out of out this, the house and yeah. this, this yeah. all happens, we're going to, we're going to go somewhere. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Okay. Second question is investing in others. So what is one uh, investment strategy or hack that you might be able to share with our audience that'll help them catapult their investing journey today? You know, I guess I'll get real specific. I'm, yeah. I'm always a evangelist for house hacking. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I think it, it, it goes back to your comment about customizing your approach mm-hmm. and, and just figuring out a way to get into the business that makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. And for, for those of you who are willing and able, like you, you, if you look at your personal budget, your housing is, all, is almost always 30%. So if you're in a high cost of living area, more mm-hmm. than that. And so if you can hack your housing, if you can figure out a way to turn your home into an investment mm-hmm. and there, that, that really, you might never do any other investments in your whole life, mm-hmm. but if you could do something like I did where you live in a fourplex and reduce your housing expense that way, that's a house hack. Mm-hmm. If you can move into a house that's just more affordable house and you live there for a year or two, even if you don't rent it while you live there, mm-hmm. but then you move out of it and keep it as a rental later on, mm-hmm. that's a way to do house hacking. Mm-hmm. Or you could do a live and flip. So you could like in high cost of living areas where it's harder to make the rental numbers work, mm-hmm. you could find a neighborhood that's up and coming, a house that needs some work, and you could live in it for two years and fix it up over time, very slowly, take your time, learn how it works. And because of the tax laws in the US, if you mm-hmm. make a profit after living there for two years, mm-hmm. you can make a tax-free profit of mm-hmm. 250,000 as an individual or up to 500,000 as a couple. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Like mm-hmm. think about 250 to 500,000 in tax-free profit. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do a lot of those deals to, to really make a big impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe I'm going to go look for a flip locally. <laughs> Drag my family around. Them. No, we're living here for two years. No, we're going here now. No, this is the next home for two years. That's a, yeah. yeah. Not for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember hearing about that um, strategy, the, you know, the tax-free um, cutoffs and all mm-hmm. of that, the two-year thing. Um, I read it in a like a Facebook group somewhere. And I was like, Oh my God, it was like mind blowing. I was like, Oh my it God, is. that's like such a great idea. Um, yeah. and the house hacking thing, uh, that's where Annie and I both started and, mm. um, you know, certainly would not be, you know, where I'm at today. Had I not started out there, I didn't start off with much, you know, it wasn't like I had right. hundreds of dollars in savings. It was, you know, 2008 bottom of the market and, you know, mm-hmm. had, all these tax credits and whatnot that, you know, made it really work. But, um, but yeah, that was such a great way. Um, So I love that. And I'm still house hacking. Still yeah, house hacking right. to this day. Love Still it. living in a duplex. <laughs> that's awesome. That's right. That's right. Okay. So last question is investing in the world. So what is one way that your investments are helping to make the world a better place? 
Um, I love that question. Uh, part of it is I've, I've just been able to spend more time. Let's go. It's kind of like the theme with parenting that, you know, if you have time, you, you, you can give back in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And my, my little way is not, you know, doesn't seem big in some schemes of things, but I, I've been able to invest in my community a lot more. Like mm-hmm. I volunteer, I started a nonprofit in 2015 and it was, a, it was a, around, uh, I just identified in my own town, we were at a local planning meeting and I was just volunteering and people were giving feedback and it came up over and over again that we're this little small town that was basically built around automobiles Mm -hmm. and we have all these great things. We have a lake right next to a university Mm -hmm. with 17,000 acre forests. We have all these natural resources Mm -hmm. and yet you have to go anywhere in town. You have to get in your car to Mm -hmm. drive safely and and get my kids to a park, Mm -hmm. you know, a quarter mile away. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, going down the road, why, 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 you know, asking these questions and it came up that, oh, well, a couple of university people have worked on some plans to, to connect everything with this network of biking and walking trails. And my entrepreneurial question was like, well, has anybody done anything about right. that? Like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's kind of sitting on a shelf somewhere. And so that, that idea started with me and a couple other entrepreneurs and then some other local people uh, formed a, a nonprofit eventually. And we've, it's called Friends of the Green Crescent Trail. And we took this idea from the, the university professor had, and we've turned it into a movement and we've got a social media presence and we're, um, we got funding, 650000 in funding from our local city this last year oh, to wow. build the first, first segment in Clemson. We've got the towns around us also uh, have gotten grant funding. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's, it's been four or five years to get to that point, but it's, it's just been really rewarding to see, okay, here's the seed of an idea. Yeah. And you take, you take these same skills you have as an entrepreneur right. and you can, you can apply them to social concepts. And I've made zero money. Mm-hmm. I'll never make any money off of this. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with money. Right. But I think it's just really opened my eyes to the fact that all of us, mm-hmm. if I can teach people how to invest in real estate mm-hmm. and get their basic bills paid, paid for, there are teachers out there, there are social mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneurs, there are people who want to help with housing. There's people, there's mm-hmm. all these social issues that a lot of us complain about, but we could be solving them using the same skills that we did in our business and entrepreneurship. And that's really been empowering to see. It's made me more inspired to help other people through the Coach Carson stuff to help them achieve financial independence so that we could make the whole world better together. Oh, I love that. That's so much of, that's like everything. That's, I mean, that's everything that we always talk about at Good Egg. That's how Annie and I came together um, and is so much of why we do what we do as well, because we feel like if more people could stop thinking about the next dollar and how they're going to, you know, find that or make that and spend more time in the home where they should be, um, you know, with, with their family, I, I just think the world is going to be a better, it could be so much of a better place. Yeah. So Great, I love that you, you up and just started a nonprofit. It's like the mark <laughs> of a true entrepreneur. I'm not going to sit back and just complain yeah. about this. I'm yeah. going to take action and mm-hmm. do something. And so you've got the nonprofit, you've got the coaching and your courses and your real estate portfolio, man, yeah. so much. So I know people are going to want to connect with you and learn more from you. Maybe even us, maybe we'll even sign up for your coaching. So what's the best place <laughs> for people to go to learn more? Well, thank you for saying that. And um, Co- coachcarson.com is my home on the internet. Um, and so I have, I, you know, if you like to read, if you like to listen to podcasts, if you like to watch videos, I try to, I'm trying to do multimedia, different, different learning forms. So everything is there. And I have a lot of fun basically every week trying to make some kind of content that's practical. Like that's kind of what I try to be my signature approach is just approachable, easy to understand. I'm not going to use superfluous, crazy language. I'm going to try to make it accurate. And this is what works, but also in a way that 
just regular, smaller investors, not the big, huge kind of try to take over the world people, people who just want lifestyle. They want to do good egg type you know, things. <laughs> they want to, they want to change the world. Um, that's, that's what I'm trying to, to help out and teach and share. So if, if anybody would love to, I would love to connect with you on my site and whatever way works for you. Chad Carson, creator of coachcarson.com. Thank you so much for being here with us, Chad. It's been an honor. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chad. You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com slash podcast. And be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.